Welcome to Mercy Hill. My name's Nick, one of the elders here. Uh, my call on a weekly basis typically is to bring you guys God's word and uh, help us worship him together as a church. If I haven't met you, if you're new here, I'd, I'd love to meet you. I, I stick around afterward. Um, please come introduce yourself. And uh, I, I'm with Jerry in what he kind of announced there at the beginning. We, if, you're, if you've been in this church for a little while, not in a home group, uh, we want to encourage you. Uh, get involved in the, the week-to-week life of, of this body. Um, if you need help uh, figuring out how to do that, where to go, whatever, uh, I'm happy to help. Jerry's happy to help. Information in the bulletin and on the web as well. Um, let's get into God's Word, okay? I have a lot for us. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. Um, the ushers will bring you by one. And the, uh, the covenant we make here <laughs> regarding these Bibles, if you don't have one, keep it. If you want to give it away to a neighbor or a co-worker, keep it. That's fine. It's uh, our gift to you. But everybody else, let's, uh, let's open up our Bibles to Luke 1, chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to read through verse 4. This is now our third week. week reading this, uh, it'll probably be our last week here. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let's pray, guys. I love it, Lord. You are concerned with our certainty. You want us to know for sure what you've done and that you did it for us. Jesus, like My brother said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And we're praying that as we spend time in and with your word this morning, you would grant us that faith, the conviction of things unseen, that we would have certainty concerning all that's been written about you, our great Savior, Jesus Christ. If there are people that come in to this room this morning not knowing you, I know they're feeling unstable and insecure. Jesus, would you show 
to them the stability of your love. Draw them in to what you've done. And for those of us who know you, Lord, but are experiencing doubt and trial, would you come and show us again just how much you love us? Make us certain. I'm praying you would do that, God, in this time. Would you give me strength? Give me a mouth to speak. And would you give all of us ears to hear by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've ever had a um, relationship where you you needed to be told again. You needed to be reassured that the person loves you. That they're not going to leave you. This could be the, um, the orphan. The kid who comes from a broken home. Parents just abandoned him, didn't want him, right? And he's maybe adopted into a family, but he still lives with this fear. And he's constantly asking his new parents, are you just going to leave me too? I need you to tell me again, love me. We're with you for life, son. We love you. We're not going anywhere. Or it might be, gosh, how many women do I know that fit this profile? It might be the woman who's been abused in relationships in times past. Just treated like material goods to be used for Whatever, the pleasure of this guy and then kicked out to the curb like garbage. And then when she finally meets someone who's actually going to love her well. Isn't it hard to believe that he's not just going to do it to you as well? Don't you find yourself asking, do you really love me? Not just my body, my looks, whatever, but me. I need you to tell me again. I'm sorry, but I'm struggling here. I need reassurance. You love me. You're not going to leave me. It's a fallen, turbulent, and dangerous world that we live in, and we need reassurance. Bad stuff happens. I mean, we talked about that last week. All over the place. We need reassurance. But you know what? We don't just need reassurance from our parents or our spouse or significant other, whatever. We need reassurance from God. We need God to come into our story and tell us again. He loves us. 
He's not going to leave us. He's with us. I will not forsake. And here's the crazy thing about our God. Yahweh, Jesus Christ, He loves to come and reassure. He loves to come into the instability of our lives, the insecurity of our hearts, and minister assurance to us. Tell us again. He delights to do it. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I mean, you read that text about Yahweh and you think, what is the high, the exalted, the holy, the eternal one doing down low here with me? And not just to kind of come and make me His slave, but to come and revive my heart my weak and broken heart to come and reassure me of His love. He condescends from His place of glory down to us and He loves to do it. This is part of His character. This is part of who He is. As a story all over the Bible, this is the basic plot line of the Scripture. We left Him, but He would not have it. He pursued us, got us, and even when He had us, He kept coming and coming and coming. I love you, I love you, I love you. And every book in the Bible is just telling us that from a different angle. (laughs) Same message. Telling us again, telling us again, telling us again. Love you, I'm not going anywhere. Hold on going to be all right. We might not have any idea, especially if we're familiar with uh, Christianity. Maybe we grew up in the church. America, you know, sometimes is called a Christian nation. That's obviously not true, but it definitely the Christian message is, um, is familiar to a lot of us. And so for, for those of us to whom it's familiar, we're kind of like, we might not realize how unique this actually is. That we have a God like this. Now maybe if you're just coming to the faith, you get a sense of, I can't even believe this. Because you've been, your false idols and the things you've been chasing for most of your life have led to more instability, more insecurity. And so to have this God that comes into your life to minister assurance, it's just like, what? Blows you away. Blows you away. He could love us like this. But I'm telling you, this is unique. As I, as I thought about and kind of went back through some of the stuff I've learned regarding like the ancient world and, and the situations and the nations surrounding Israel, it's crazy. The polytheistic system of the nations that surrounded them just led to this, just naturally, this instability. 
you got all these gods who are kind of vying for authority, competing with one another, self-centered and capricious. And you got these guys down here, they don't know what's going on in the world, but they're making sacrifices to the God that they think is going to help them, and they have no idea what's going to happen. Or they're reading the entrails of animals to try to figure out what are the gods saying, and they just have to guess. They don't have a God like Yahweh, like we do. Listen to this. Faithfulness is one of the most frequently affirmed attributes of Yahweh because of His covenant relationship with Israel. In contrast, it is difficult to find any such affirmation for the gods of the ancient Near East. Words that convey loyalty are never used of the gods in that way. The gods have no agreements or promises to be faithful to and no obligations or commitments to fulfill. The gods of the nations surrounding Israel don't make promises. They don't make covenants. They don't come and reassure. This lead to more instability. Who knows if they're on our side or not? We have a God who moves in the complete opposite direction. One of the most frequently affirmed attributes, faithfulness. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm going to stabilize you. The other gods led to instability. Our God comes to stabilize, to assure, to tell us again. Deuteronomy 4.7 For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? No other God like this. No matter how great the nation, they don't have Yahweh. And you see the same thing actually with the God of Islam when you contrast Allah to our God, the God of the Scriptures. Uh, there's a, a class I was taking on apologetics at Westminster, and I remember this. Um, he was talking about how with he, with this Muslim guy, he was he was trying to share um, his faith, and he was coming at it apologetics kind of way. You know, uh, we'll talk about the Quran and historical facts and this or that. And, and I guess this, this Muslim guy kind of stopped him and said, you want to know what the most compelling argument actually is for Christianity? You want to know what it is? It's not all these facts and all this. It's what he said. What you Christians have is this. You know that God loves you. And we don't. We say it, but we don't believe it like you We have a God who comes and assures and convinces and tells us again and again and again of His love. They don't have that. They don't have the incarnation where God actually comes to dwell. The high and and, and exalted one actually comes to dwell. They don't have that. And they don't have the New Testament where in every book, just a different angle riffing on the same message I love you. I'm not giving up on you. They don't have that. So they don't have certainty. And they don't know God that loves them. Won't give up on them. 
Luke's gospel, if you're wondering when I was going to get into Luke, <laughs> is a tell me again project. It's a tell me again pro- I need to hear it again, Lord. Luke's gospel is a tell me again project. If last week, we're here, we established that Jesus is the answer to one of our most pressing questions, namely, who can put this world back together? If that was, if Luke focused in on that last week like we did, that Jesus is the answer, what we're going to focus on here this morning is God's commitment to tell us again and again and again, Jesus is the answer. He doesn't give up. He wants to convince us. He wants us to be certain Christ, in fact, is the way, the only way. He is the one who's making all things new. God doesn't just tell us once and leave us to ourselves. He tells us again and again. In the first four verses, Luke writes this formal prologue that you might be prone to skip over, right? We've been there three weeks. (laughs) Most people will be prone to skip right over and get to the good stuff. Get to the story. This is just kind of... Uh, you know, he just, he's just doing conventional stuff. Let's get into the real meat. But we don't want to do that. Because in these four verses, we're given much regarding Luke's focus in writing this gospel, his method in writing it. But most significant for us today, we're given his purpose. We're given, why? Why, Luke? Why 24 chapters? Why the longest book in the New Testament? You want to know why? Verse 4 is why. That you, Theophilus, may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Many have already compiled narratives, Luke says, of the things that have been accomplished among us. That's verse 1. Many. They're already out there. Maybe Mark, maybe others, maybe oral tradition. But it seemed good to Luke, and God through Luke, to write another one. To tell them again. Why? Certainty. Certainty. I want you, Theophilus, and now us, to be certain about Christ and what He's done. The word certainty there in the Greek uh, has the notion of stability, the notion of assurance, the notion of security, safety, Protection from stumbling or falling. The other place Luke um, actually uses this word, the only other place in Luke Acts, is actually in Acts 5.23. You want to know what it's referring to? When, When they're being locked in prison. They're securely locked in this prison. Okay? So the idea put positively in our text is Luke wants for us to be locked up In God's love. Unable to get out. I'm so sure He loves me. I can't get out. I'm imprisoned by His love. And so, Luke endeavors in his gospel to tell us again. I'm going to organize my thoughts this morning under three headings, um, all of which derive from the natural sense and order of the text, we're going to move from things accomplished to things delivered into things certain. You should see that there on your handout. The things accomplished by Christ 
are delivered to others in the, wor- uh, in the word of Christ, all with the goal of assuring us of the validity of our faith and stability of his love. So first, things accomplished. Now, we, we spent a lot of time on this um, last week. We're not going to spend much time here. But it's important that we start at this point. Things accomplished. Why? This is what kind of answers the question, what are we supposed to be certain of? What does Luke want Theophilus to be certain of? Um, we have it there in verse 4, where it says um, that Luke wants Theophilus to have certainty concerning the things he had been taught. But what were these things? That brings us back up to verse 1. The things accomplished among us that were delivered down to us, then taught to Theophilus. And Luke says, I want you to have certainty concerning those things, those things Jesus accomplished. That's what Luke wants Theophilus to be certain of. And we remember, we remember from last week that Luke is jealous from the very first verse to show Christ as this climactic fulfillment of all the Old Testament. All of its promises, prophecies, symbols, and shadows fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in fulfilling it, in fulfilling the old, what we saw last time is that He initiates the new. We, we followed that word, if you recall, accomplishments, last week. And what emerged was a vision of Christ as the new creator who through a new exodus was going to establish a new humanity. He is the one in and through whom God is going to make all things new. He's the one. What he's accomplished, that is to be the object of our certainty. Things delivered. Things accomplished become things delivered. How do these accomplishments get to us? How do we hear about it? What are we doing here on a Sunday morning? Worshipping this Jesus in light of all that He's accomplished. How did it get to us? In verses 1 through 3, we see essentially three stages of delivery. Okay? The historical order, bear with me here, of this delivery kind of moves from verse 2a, the first part of verse 2, into the second part of verse 2. And then we see it go to verse 1, actually, and verse 3. So what the movement is this. We watch as things are delivered from Christ to eyewitnesses. From these eyewitnesses that are, become ministers of the Word to Luke and his contemporaries. And then from Luke, in particular, to Theophilus, and now to us. So I want to look at these three stages for a moment, but before I do, one of the most intriguing things about this delivery process is that at every stage, at every stage in this delivery, certainty and assurance stand forth as the driving goal. That what's moving this, 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 this delivery along is a desire for others to know and be sure of God's love for them in Christ. So let's begin with stage one, if you will, from Christ to eyewitnesses. 
This is verse 2a, or the first part of verse 2. It says this, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of the things accomplished. Remember. So for these accomplishments of Christ to benefit anybody, they first had to be witnessed and understood. So what does Jesus do in his ministry, realizing that what he's about to accomplish has to be passed on if it's to be of any good to anybody? He calls together, you see it there in Luke 6, 13. Um, He brings together his disciples, all these people who've been following him, and he picks out 12. And it says he names them apostles. He's going to bring them close. He's going to let them in. He wants them to be eyewitnesses to all that he is going to accomplish in his life, death, and resurrection. He wants them to see this. Now, we, we read Peter. He talks about this in 2 Peter 1.16. He was one of the apostles. He says this, We did not follow, we being the apostles, we did not follow cleverly de- devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So we weren't just kind of receiving these myths that had no real historical fact and we just kind of find them to be nice and make us feel better about our lives. He said, no, no, no. We saw the historical facts unfold. We were there. We saw it with our eyes, which in the ancient world was the best way to get credible history. The eyewitness was critical. So they saw it. They saw the accomplishments of the Messiah. But we remember from last week that though they saw it, they still didn't get it. Though they saw everything going on, they didn't get it. If, if Jesus' goal was not only do they have to see this, they have to understand what's going on, otherwise no one else is going to pass it on. We have a problem here. Because Jesus tells them again and again, we're told in, in, in Luke, uh, that He's going to suffer, He's going to die there in Jerusalem, but He's going to rise again. And every time, they don't, they don't get it. And finally, when they watch him suffer and die, they don't think, okay, now he's going to rise again. They think, it's over. There's no category for a crucified Christ. That don't make any sense. He's dead. It's over. So what does Jesus have to do? If he's going to get, get things accomplished, handed off, in this first stage of delivery, what does he have You've got to come in and make them sure. He's got to make them certain. He's got to help them know for sure he's alive. What he's accomplished is for real. And that is, that, that's basically the point of Luke 24. When you watch what Jesus is doing there, that's what he's doing. I'll give you a few of the examples. Just kind of trace through it quickly. But he's coming to minister assurance to these apostles who think, now, it's over. He actually begins with not the apostles, but the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? And he comes and what does he do? He shows up to them. They still don't get it. He does a Bible study with them saying, look, look, look. It's in the Scriptures that the Christ is to suffer and die. 
He was the Christ. I am the Christ. And they still don't kind of get it, but he's trying. Jesus is, is trying to get them to be sure, trying to get them to see. And what happens? Finally, he says, all right, flesh is never going to get it. I'm opening your eyes. <laughs> he opened up their hearts. They, and all of a sudden they saw, oh my gosh, this is the Christ. And he disappeared at that point. He vanished. But his goal was to get them to the place of, he is the Christ. This is for real. And then these two disciples go and find the eleven, because now they're so jazzed, right? They go and find the eleven. Remember, so there were twelve. Obviously, Judas betrayed. He was the traitor. So now there's eleven. And they're gathered together. And, and you know, at first the eleven aren't sure, but then the two come in. And what do we find out? But that Christ also appeared to Peter, to Simon. Says this in verse 34. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They say, Yes, two on the road to Emmaus. We know. He appeared to Simon as well. He appeared to Peter. And we have evidence from other scriptures that it would seem Peter was the first one Jesus pursued. 1 Corinthians 15 5 would indicate that Peter was the first one. You gotta ask. Why? Why Peter? Peter was the one, in my opinion, that probably needed the most assurance. Tell me again, right? Because Peter was the one with the most grievous denial, even invoking a curse upon himself. I don't know the man to avoid the persecution that would come, right? From knowing Jesus. And so what does Jesus do after his resurrection? I gotta find Peter. I gotta go to him and let him know the things accomplished are for real and they are for him. I want to restore him to certainty. I want to reassure him. So the Lord has risen indeed and he's appeared to Peter. Peter's sharing his story around this table. The two from the road to Emmaus are sharing their resurrection story around the table. Wow, Jesus showed up to me. He showed up to me. This is real. Certainty is being stirred up at this point. And then what happens? Jesus himself shows up. And he stands in their midst. And do you remember what he says to them? He says this, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. What's it doing there? In other words, I want you to know for sure. Why are you struggling? Why are you doubting? Do what you got to do to know for sure. Come, touch, it's me. I have died, yes, but I have risen from the dead. This is for real. And he wants them to be certain. And what does he do at the end of it? We looked at it last week. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and they got it. He's the one. That's stage one in things delivered from Christ to eyewitnesses. But now what we see doesn't stop there. 
Assurance has this dynamic to it. When we become to be assured of God's love for us in Christ, it just naturally wants to flow out into other people. We want to give it away. And so this is what we see in verse 2a. They're eyewitnesses. But in the second part, we see they're also called what? Ministers of the word. So these eyewitnesses, those who saw the things accomplished, become the ones who deliver the things accomplished in the word of the gospel to others. And this is precisely what we see actually in Luke 24 as well. After assuring them, this is for real. I love you. (laughs) I love others. This is what he says. Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In other words, after opening their minds to get it, to be sure, He says, now go and tell others. Go proclaim this to the nations. It's not just for you, it's moving on to other people. The eyewitnesses become ministers. There's this um, beautiful text in 1 John 1. Remember, John was one of the apostles, right? And there's this wonderful text that kind of captures what the apostles do, how they take this charge from Jesus to deliver this to the next generation. And what it kind of looks like. What the heart behind it was. I said that certainty and assurance is driving this this delivery program. I want you to read this. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. John the Apostle writes this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our, yours and my, joy may be complete. I wonder if that was too fast for you if you caught it. It's beautiful. Same language as Luke 1, same kind of process, same goal. He's saying, we saw, we were the eyewitnesses. And we became ministers of this word. And the goal of of, of this ministry, the goal of handing on this word is what? We want you to enjoy the fellowship that we have with the Father and the Son. We want you to be brought in to our joy in knowing who He is, knowing His accomplishments and that they are for us. So the circle gets bigger. Jesus starts with the 11, the 12, whatever, and he goes out from there. And they are now delivering this, we see in Luke 2 at the end. They're delivering this word. It's going out. Well, who are they delivering it to? Luke, 
and his contemporaries, we would say, right? Luke doesn't claim to be an eyewitness himself. He's a second generation. He receives from this stage two delivery. Well, then we move into stage three as it goes from Luke to Theophilus and then to us. And what we find is that this whole, this whole delivery process just kind of multiplies out from here. It's like when people actually get, when people actually get what Jesus has done, when He assures us of it, when we are, when we are brought into this certainty that the things accomplished are things for me, we know what happens. It just explodes. With, we can't stop talking about it. We can't stop writing about it. We can't stop reflecting on it. And that's kind of what you get here. Luke says, you know what? I know. <laughs> you see it there in, in verse 1. A lot of my contemporaries, many, he says, have written stuff about what's been accomplished among us. And maybe, maybe, they, maybe it's oral tradition. You don't know. It wasn't, writing at that point wasn't as, as accessible, paper, all that sort of stuff. So you're dealing with a different, different time. But regardless, people can't stop reflecting on what Jesus has accomplished among them. Many, he says, have already done this. But I got to do it too. <laughs> I got I to gotta, I gotta say it again. I got to tell the story again. I want Theophilus to hear it from another angle. I want him to hear it again. What do we see in verse 3? I want you to look at it. What can we note about Luke's process? This is what he says. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. The thing that impresses upon us as we look at Luke's process, as we look at Luke, why he's doing this or how he did it, what this stage and delivery looked like, is his radical effort. I mean, he is a, he is a, he's a class A historian. Not even biblical scholars, not even, not even people who are Christians appreciate the history that Luke has, has, has done for us. You see this radical effort He is so desiring for Theophilus to be certain that you see this effort that he's willing to put into this tell me again project. We see there that he followed all things closely. He collected sources, you get the sense of, both both oral and written, and he did investigations, you can imagine. He was traveling with Paul, able to talk with him. Chances are we get Luke 1 and 2 because he was interviewing Mary and other things. He was in those circles and he was following all things closely. But we see more. He did this for some time past. He gave a lot of his life to investigating. He, he, he put a lot of energy into this. And then we see also that even when he gathered all this data, he didn't just kind of haphazardly put it together. He put it in an orderly account. He's being very careful about all of this because he so desperately wants Theophilus to be certain of the things Christ has accomplished among us. So the question is, after these three stages of delivery and now it's reached us, how do you get certainty? How do you get it? Where does it 
come from? I imagine those of us here are like, oh, I'm struggling knowing the love of God. I'm struggling with, with feeling assured. Where does it come from? How do I get it? We might be prone, if we've been reading Luke carefully, especially verse 3, to think that you get it by the facts. You get it by he's going to put together all the historical pieces and then once he's done a good enough job and all the facts are out on the table, all of us will have certainty. We'll all see and believe. Is Luke a mere rationalist? Does he believe that if he could just open up your brain and put in the right facts, you would believe? You would trust. You would be certain. Is that why he's going to all this effort historically as a historian to put this stuff together? No. You don't believe that. The rest of Luke Acts doesn't in any way bear that out. We already talked about it. They could have all the facts and they still wouldn't get it. And it wasn't just that way with the apostles at the beginning. It's that way all the way through Luke and Acts. In fact, if you remember Lydia, it's this amazing thing that Luke records as Paul is telling Lydia, this Gentile, about the gospel, about the things accomplished. You want to know what, what, what Luke says? It says that the Lord opened up her heart to pay attention to the things Paul was saying. So it's more than just facts that we need. We need the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the risen Christ, to open up our eyes, open up our minds, open up our hearts to receive with certainty. That stuff is for real. And it's for me. Now, the facts, what we can gather from Luke, the facts are very important, you guys. Historical veracity, historical referentiality is critical to the gospel. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then what does Paul say? Our faith is in vain. If that resurrection isn't historical fact, then this is a joke. We're still dead in our sins. What are we even doing here? But if, in fact, he has been raised historically, if it is historical fact, then look out. This is for real. So the facts are critical. Getting the words put carefully and in order for us are critical. It's not decisive in our certainty. We need something more. We need the Spirit of God to come. And as the Word is being proclaimed, as it's being delivered, as we're seeing the things accomplished, and those things are being delivered, we need the Spirit of God to come and open up our hearts so that things accomplished, things delivered, become things certain. Things certain. It's almost like the image in my head is... um, the original creation. What do you have? You have the Word of God, right? Let there be light. You have the Word going forth. And then you have the Spirit hovering over the face of the deep, right? Bringing forth what the Word declares. 
That's the first creation. That's the original creation. What's happening here today? I pray as the Word goes forth. The Word of God. The Spirit is hovering over the depths of our heart. Bringing life in response to this Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word. But faith is a gift. God's grace. Ephesians 2. New creation. Here in this room today. I ask a few questions here as we close. Why do we need it? Why do we need certainty? We see kind of now how we get it. Why do we need it? Why does Luke care so much that Theophilus has it, that he puts together this, this massive project? If you want to include Acts in it, it's crazy. It's more than a quarter of the New Testament. Just so that Theophilus and us could be certain of the things accomplished. Why do, why do we need this certainty? And we can get it why we need it by looking at why maybe Theophilus needed it. This is interesting. Think about this with me. There's just a couple reasons. Theophilus was most likely a Gentile, right? We covered that. Most likely a Gentile. And now you want to put yourself in his shoes. Now you've got this Gentile in what traditionally has been a, historically a Jewish movement. And he's sitting here going, the whole world is trying to figure out, is Christianity Jewish? Is it Judaism? Is it just a different branch? What's going on? It's not until I think Acts 11 when they f- start calling them Christians and realize something new is going on. But you've got, you've got, you've got Theophilus who's going, were his accomplishments, the Jewish Messiah's accomplishments, for me? What am I doing in this movement? What am I doing here? All of my kinsmen are following the pantheon of gods out there, and I'm over here following this Jesus, this Jew. Is it for real? And this is where Luke's focus on the universality of, of salvation comes into play, right? So Luke gets this gospel, or I'm sorry, Theophilus gets this gospel from Luke, and he's reading the words that are carefully ordered and researched. And he sees what we already read. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Christ's name to all nations. And the Spirit of God lights up that word for him in those moments and he says, I'm in all nations. Forgiveness is for me here. Not just a Jewish Messiah, a universal Savior. His cross, His death, His resurrection, me. I'm in there. And isn't that the same for us, right? A lot of us come to church and we go, oh, I am so, you can barely lift up your head. I'm, I'm such a sinner. I'm not like these other churchy people. They're all clean and have these smiles on their face. What am I doing here? I don't belong in this gathering. And then, you read Luke's Gospel, get into the Word, and what do you see? Pharisees and tax collectors, or I'm sorry, Pharisees and scribes grumbling about Jesus because He's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. What's He doing with these people? Oh my, I never knew who they really were. Oh, 
And then Jesus says this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, I came for the sick. I came for the sinner. I came for the tax collector. I came for the exile, the nobody, the loser. I came for them. I came for you. Spirit of God lights up that word in your heart and suddenly where there was doubt, now there's certainty. He came for me. Sinner though I am, He's an even greater Savior. I'm sorry, it's getting, don't look at the clock. <laughs> I'll be taking us home here really quickly. Theophilus, let's do another example real quick. Most likely a wealthy aristocrat. Most likely a wealthy aristocrat. How do I know? In the greeting, when, when Luke says, you know, oh, most excellent Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. It's kind of this, what would appear to be a more formal um, uh, uh, greeting that, that expresses a, a it, it would be used for people of kind of higher social status in the Roman Empire. We see that even later on in Acts. So you know that Theophilus probably was someone with social status. And you know he probably also was wealthy because Luke probably um, dedicates this to him because he monetarily supported it. He was the patron of this whole project. So probably rich, probably man of social status. Now you start to see why the theme of reversal is so critical in Luke. Why he would want to show it's the poor that are, that are rich. Why he would want to show it's the last that are first. As Theophilus' unique context makes him subject to the various temptations of the world. And he's thinking, man, I don't know. Is, is it really worth it to follow Christ? Is this really what it's all about? And he opens the word of this gospel and he reads that parable that only Luke records of the rich fool, right? Who stores up all of his stuff in barns only to die that night poor before God. Fool! You saved up all this stuff. Whose will they be now? Spirit of God illumines the Word of God. And Theophilus says, This place isn't my home. I don't want to be rich in this world. I don't want to be subject to all this. I want to be rich before God in heaven. Same thing, right? We need that sort of certainty here. We need to know heaven is for real. We need to know His kingdom is for real. As we're looking out at San Jose and we're seeing all these, all these wealthy people, all these big companies, and Satan comes along and says, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. How are you going to withstand? That's how you're going to withstand. You know Jesus' words. You've, see, you've read Luke's Gospel. You see that to be rich in the world is, is, is loss before God. So I'll end with this. Do we have it? Do we have certainty? What do we do? Luke wants us to have it. God wants us to have it. What do we do? How do we get it? I know we talked about the Word, but we talked about the Spirit. And so if it's just up to the Spirit, do we just kind of sit around and wait? Nothing we can do? Hopefully God assures us somehow, shows up around our dinner table like He did with the apostles. I don't think so. 
I think Luke gives us this example. He's, he, Luke knows that the Spirit is the decisive factor, but that doesn't stop him from, from energetically mobilizing all of his efforts to get the facts right, to get the Word out there. And so, in an analogous sort of way, are we getting into His Word? With all of our effort, are we strategizing? Are we, are we doing our part to give the Spirit a chance to move? laying ourselves in the pathway of the Spirit, and the Spirit illumines the Word, uses the Word. So are we there? Are we thinking about, I've got to get the Word before me? Whether it's in the morning with devotions, or while I'm commuting to work, I'm listening to sermons, or I'm listening to a Bible on tape while I'm exercising, or I'm putting worship music on instead of... <laughs> Kanye West, nobody listens to Kanye He's just the one that's in the news usually. So that's... We, there are a lot of ways we could do this. You've got guys in this church that are memorizing Scripture. I want it there with me wherever I'm going. I want to give the Spirit a chance to move. In other words, to give you a picture, are we building an altar upon which the fire of God can fall? Are we building a temple which the glory of God can fill? Are we, are we putting His words before us and praying for God to show up and assure us again? Tell me again. And last question. I ask, do we have it? Do they have it? What do I mean by that? We see Jesus' heart to assure the apostles, right? of what he's done. Things accomplished become things certain. And then you see Jesus' heart become the apostles' heart. John wants others to be folded in and Paul gave his life for that. You would know the breadth, the height, the width, the depth of his love. It's my life. And then people like Luke becomes their heart. I want Theophilus to know. So now the question is, now that it's reached us, do they know? In other words... Do we want, are we with Luke in this? We just long for other people to know the certainty. People living in stability. Everybody wants assurance of love. They just don't know where to turn to get the real thing. We're bringing it to them. And are we bringing it to one another? Are we sharing resurrection stories and stirring up certainty? Jesus doesn't just come to assure us in his word while we read, you know, in our devotions on the couch in the morning. His goal with that is to move us out into the streets so we can give it to others. Let's pray. God, would you come here and tell us again? It's amazing. It's amazing that this whole gospel was written with the goal of assuring us The things you accomplished are for real and they're for us. I pray that your spirit would come and minister that certainty, minister that assurance here this morning. Both to those who have known you a long time and are struggling and to those who maybe have been following the false gods who just lead us down the way of instability and insecurity. Would you show them Yahweh is not like any other God? Would you come and tell them, maybe for the first time, 
And would you come and tell us again? We know that it's your breath in our lungs. We know that it's your spirit that brings life. That the new creation connects to the old and just like you breathe life into the dust. And Adam was formed. So you breathe with your spirit into us and we're born again. I'm praying that your spirit would continue, continue, accompany your word and tell us again and again. Minister assurance to us this week, Jesus, so that we we can be like what that, that Muslim said. We can know of your love and have that be a compelling proof to those around us. We can tell others and they might believe and come to know all that you've accomplished for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.